0: Okay. We are going to like I said before spend the entire sermon period on the gospel of Jesus Christ today. So we're going to have everything you need on the slides. So follow along as we go through that today. I think it's going to be a blessing for everyone. It was for me this week, I'm going to be honest, as I dove into the gospel this week, it was one of those things that you know or you believe you know, but the more you dive into it, the more you realize there's still a lot you don't understand and still still a lot you don't really appreciate. And so that's the point of today so that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so we can all be on the same page, we can all understand and appreciate Christ even more. And if you are not one of those people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the whole point for this today is so that you would come to an understanding of Christ, his love, his grace, and you would turn to him for salvation. So, uh, the first thing I want to do is take you to John 3.16 because it just is fitting. It's the most famous verse in the entire Bible and it's on purpose. John 3.16, we're going to actually include verse 17 in this as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. This is the reason today that we speak of the gospel, is because it is the best news that has ever come to this world. I'd like to ask you a question. Did you ever miss out on something great? (laughs) Think about that for a minute. Did you ever miss out on something great? When I was in college uh, here at Clark Summit University, um, toward the last year of our, our schooling, I was I was a senior with a, my fellow peers, and I was kind of in between junior and senior because I was kind of lagging behind my studies, unfortunately, but my class was now seniors, and they were planning a senior trip, as most senior classes do. Well, this one was going to be a very special one. They'd saved their money, they looked forward to this, and it was going to be a cruise. Pretty cool, right? Well... I was kind of between grades, as I told you before, and I'm going to be honest, cruise didn't excite me for whatever reason. And so I didn't really plan to go on the cruise. And I remember my cousin was at college at the same time in the same class, and she came up to me, remember this, Christy, and she said, Todd, you got to go. You got to go on this cruise. I said, I don't know, you know, I don't really like water, you know, I'm not big on crowds, I don't like buffets. Uh, on and on and on. I don't like the smell of fish. I mean, how many reasons do I need to give you? And she was pressing me, and a couple of the friends were pressing me to say, Todd, you got to go. It's not going to be the same if you're not there. Come on, you got to go on this cruise. And she just kept begging me and begging me, and I just stood firm. I said, you know what? I don't think so. Not for me. So a few weeks or a few months went by, and eventually the trip came, and I started to think about it, going, huh, I bet that would have been fun. I bet that would have been fun to go on a cruise with a lot of my friends and enjoy the time there. But you know what? Literally the ship had sailed by that point. <laughs> and uh, now it was just a regret. my My friends and my cousin were all on this trip together, having a blast, and I missed out on the cruise, right? Why wouldn't I want to go on a cruise? It makes no sense now that I speak of it. But I missed out on something great. That's an example of that. I want to share a couple examples that I found on the internet. These are big ones, these are big blunders. These are even bigger than me missing a cruise, and these probably won't be news to you, but it's a little shocking once you hear them together. In 1873, Thomas Edison was turning heads with a newfangled invention called the light bulb. A British government committee said it was okay for our transatlantic friends, but it's unworthy of the attention of practical or scientific people. We don't need the light bulb. We got candles, you know. We got torches. Who needs the light bulb? Ouch. We all do. Now we use the light bulb every single day. Here's another one. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell uh, invented a gadget he called the telephone. Now he wanted to commercialize it and offer it, offer the patent to Western Union for $100,000. He told them he wanted to install telephones in every city of America. They said no and described the device as idiotic. Anyone not have a phone? (laughs) That was idiotic, unfortunately. Uh, Western Union missed out on that one. Uh, A couple more. Back in the 70s, a guy guy named Steve Wozniak was working for Hewlett Packard at the time. He tried to get the company interested in a new personal computer he was building. They rejected the idea and said people would never use computers in their home. So true, right? Who needs one of those? Instead, he and his friend Steve Jobs went into their garage and built it themselves. The result was the Apple One. And the rest is history. And then one more. Uh, Back in 2000, Blockbuster ruled home entertainment when along came a little company called Netflix, a struggling online mail order company in need of some cash. Its CEO offered to sell up for $50 million dollars but it was laughed out of the building. Today, Netflix is valued at over more than $70 billion. Ouch. Did you ever miss out on something great? Today, we are going to talk about the best news, the best gift, the best thing that's ever come to mankind, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In order to talk about the gospel properly, you need to start at the beginning. So we're going to do that a little bit. Hopefully we won't take too long, but I need to start where it's proper to start, with God. The gospel starts with God. So the question today is, who is God? I bet that's a question a lot of people have. We, it seems we have a fabric of this in our nation. I put this on the slide. Sayings like, one nation under God, found in our Pledge of Allegiance. God Bless America is a song they sing at baseball games and things like that, and printed on our money is the saying, in God we trust. So I did a little research, saying, well, what God is in our language a lot. How many people actually believe in God? Apparently, I looked this up, only 2.4% of Americans, which is still about 8 million people, identify as atheists, saying that there is no God, I don't believe in God, God doesn't exist. But that's 2.4% of the population here in America. 8.6% of Americans, approximately almost 30 million people, say they're unsure if there's a God. That's a lot of people, right? But 89% of Americans, approximately 287.5 million people, say they believe in God. The one true God? Probably not. Definitely not. But they say they believe in a higher power. And I thought that was interesting. What I want to do now is look at a passage from the book of Romans that talks about this idea. It's actually Romans chapter 1. And I want you to listen to what it says in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know what that passage says? According to God, there are no true atheists. There are no real agnostics out there. According to Romans, if you believe the Bible, everyone knows there's a God. Nobody is unsure that there's a God because God has made it plainly obvious to the entire world that he exists. All over creation, if you ever look around at creation, it's obvious this isn't random happen chance. God designed this. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. Even what's on the world that has been tainted by sin clearly is not man-made or anything random. And not only that, but God has sown it in our hearts so that not only do we see it all around us, we know it deep within us, that God is real, and the moral fabric of our souls tells us that. And I find that very interesting. So those who call themselves atheists and agnostics today, what they're actually doing, according to Romans 1, is they're suppressing the truth. They think that if they knock it down and stomp on it long enough, it actually won't exist any longer. But you can't do that with God, can you? You can't do that with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't suppress the truth. Jesus says in his scripture all over it, he's going to win. He's going to win. And all of us want to be on his side. And that's the whole point of today, so that we're on the right side. So, who is God? In Isaiah 40, it says this Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Is that a cool definition of our God? He's everlasting. He's the creator of the ends of the earth and everything in between. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The more you search out God, the more you realize you're not even close to knowing him, to what he really is. What I want to do now is I want to work through a few bullet points just to make sure we're all on the same page about God, okay? Because this is really important to the next step. If we don't understand God, we don't understand man. We don't understand sin. We don't understand the need for salvation. So we have to start with God. The first thing we see there, even in Isaiah, is that God is from everlasting to everlasting. Isn't that a cool phrase? Everlasting to everlasting. And I'm going to be honest, I have trouble thinking about that. I have trouble thinking about what eternity is like. But it says he's from everlasting to everlasting. God has no beginning and no end. He never started. He'll never end. Isn't that a wild thought to think about God? Everything we know has a beginning and an end, but not God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. God is also holy. That's a word that we throw around a lot, but holy, holiness actually comes from God because holiness means set apart from anything and everything else which means there's nothing like god there's no true parallel for god every time you try to make a parallel for god it fails miserably because there's nothing like god and i think it's even dangerous to try to humanize god to try to put him in human form devalues god because there's nothing like him he's holy he's above our own thoughts God is the creator of the universe, which we know, right? It's a Sunday school answer. Of course, God created everything, including mankind. He did this in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. But in six days, he created the world. And he spoke things into existence, things that never existed up to that point, obeyed him and came into existence, like light. Let there be light. And immediately, there was light. There was a sun, there was moon, there were stars. And the first thing he did was create light, and it obeyed him. So the Lord is the creator of everything, everything good and right and pure. Every breath we take, think about this, is by oxygen God created through lungs that God created. You owe every breath to God. It's from his oxygen and it's from his lungs. So thank you, Lord, for the breath that we have this very moment. God created everything. Next, God is revealed to mankind through creation. We talked about that. Just by looking around, look at creation, you can go, duh. I hope you guys can understand that. If you've ever been around to the beach or just looked at the sky, even the night sky, it's clearly, plainly obvious that we have a designer and a ruler. But he's also revealed to mankind through the scriptures that we call the Bible. The 66 books of the Bible reveal everything we need to know about God on this earth not everything about God because the scriptures can't even contain God but everything we need to know in order to understand God properly is within the 66 books of the Bible and that's a cool thing to know that I can know God you can know God by opening the pages of scripture that's exactly what we try to do here every Sunday is open the pages of scripture and reveal God to our souls Here's another thing. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Nothing is hidden from his sight. You know what that means? You have no privacy with God. Privacy is a big thing today, right? Everyone wants privacy. No one wants to know what they what's happening with their files and their names and their money and things like that. God knows and sees everything. That is a wild thought. That is a scary thought, if I'm honest. But it's true. Nothing is hidden from God. He's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. Next, God is good. The very word good defines God. He's righteous in everything he does perfectly. Everything he does is right and perfect. And to me, that's also comforting and a little terrifying, if I'm honest. That he's pure and righteous and there's no possibility of corruption with God. None. God cannot be corrupted. And we're going to talk about what he does with sin because of that very reason. But God is good and perfectly righteous in all that he does. And to me, that brings me comfort and a little terror. Next, God is light. God is light. The scripture says that very thing. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the first thing God did when he created the world, if you remember from Genesis, all there was was darkness and void. Over the face of the deep. So God came on the scene, and the first thing he created was light, because that's what he is. So as soon as God comes on the scene, light comes onto the scene, because God is light. And there's no darkness, no corruption, no sin fellowship with God whatsoever. Wow. Amazing to know. And the last thing, if there is a last thing, of course, is God is love. God's love is broader and deeper than man's ability to understand it. And that really is comforting, isn't it? Because I'm going to be honest here today that God is powerful and all-powerful and all-knowing, and the fact that he's light and the fact that he's good and righteous, all of those, in a way, are kind of scary to me. Because I'm weak and I try to hide things from God, and I'm not full of light entirely. And by nature, I'm not good. But God is all of those things. But the thing that brings me a lot of comfort that we're going to talk about today for the rest of the time is that God is love. God is love. So if you know love, if you have experienced love, it's because of God. That's his very nature. So we've briefly looked at God, uh, sadly very briefly, but now we have to move our attention to mankind. This is what happens here. God's created the world, he created everything, and his most treasured creation and all of his creation is mankind. God created mankind in a special, unique way in his image, which means we are to look physically like God because God is spirit, he's not physical, but we are made to act, to think, to love like God does, at least initially when he created us. We were made in God's image. God took his most special creative energy and power and put it into man. And even scientists would attest to this today, that the human mind is more complex than all of space. Think about that. That the human mind, one human mind, is more complex than all of space. Do you see the creativity? Do you see the design at work in mankind from God? That even all of creation, all of everything, the sky and the beauty and the water can't match one human mind. It's a wild thought. So man was God's most treasured creation. And because of that, he placed man in a garden, a paradise called Eden, to love God, to enjoy God, to glorify God, to have perfect fellowship with God, to work in the garden with no struggle at all. And his purpose was to just enjoy God, to be with God, to glorify God. Because God and him, God and man, were going to have perfect Fellowship and we don't know what that's like because we've never experienced that but there were two people at least for a time that experienced that perfect fellowship with God So he created Adam and after seeing that man was alone. We know what he did he took one of Adam's ribs while he was asleep and he made woman as a gift to man so that man could have a helper and a mate and a friend And he did this so that woman and man could join together in marriage and be one because they're going to reflect something cool. Man and woman are going to reflect, in marriage, the relationship between God and his people. And that's a cool thing, too. That God not only said, hey, Adam, you're alone. I want to change that. Here's some animals, you know. Enjoy six cats. No, no. Here's woman. She is of you. She is from you. And she will help you and love you. So everything was perfect in the garden. We know that. And after seeing that man was alone, he gave him woman, and then he gave them both one very specific command, to not eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for us, it's like, why, Lord? Why withhold anything? But you have to take the perspective of hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of trees with fruit, all pleasing to the eye and to the stomach. And God said, one tree. Don't eat from it, because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So they heard that very loud and clear. God is keeping them from evil. God is keeping them from harm by telling them, don't eat of the tree. You guys ever do that with your children? Don't touch the stove? Is it because we don't want them to enjoy the pleasures of a stove? No. We don't want them burned. We don't want them really, really hurt. And God was looking out for them by telling them to not do that. So he gave him that one specific command. God, we have to remember, God is all-knowing, he is all-wisdom, and he is love. So what God is doing is he's looking out for mankind while he gives that command. But we know the rest of the story. The woman was deceived by the serpent, the devil. She ate of the forbidden fruit, she then gave it to man. He ate of the fruit, and guess what happened? The perfect fellowship was gone sin entered into the picture a broken fellowship was now there a fractured relationship was now there and everything changed from that point on because of sin because if you remember god is holy and pure and righteous and as long as man was that way too there was perfect fellowship but as soon as sin came into the scene shattered broken man had to be dismissed and now we're going to look at the curse. And God's dilemma, because there is a dilemma here. Because of his holiness, it's very important to remember, God is holy and pure in righteousness. He cursed man for his disobedience. He cast him from the paradise, from the garden, forever. And then he, too, cursed the earth. The earth was now cursed as well. From that point on, labor on the earth was going to be difficult and painful. Anyone experience that sort of thing? Doesn't it seem, I told this to Janine the other day, doesn't it seem like every part of life fights you? Right? Like even gravity sometimes is like your worst enemy. It's like, really? You know? um, I had just had one of those days the other day where just everything was fighting me. From technology to I tried to stand a bag of garbage up and every time you try to do that, right, it goes the other way. You know? It's just everything was fighting me. And I just remembered the curse of the earth. God, curse the earth. Now everything was going to be painful and hard. At the beginning, it wasn't that way. It was pleasurable and easy and satisfying. And now everything was going to fight us because of sin. Because of our sin. God also specifically cursed woman because she was the first one that ate of the fruit. And he said that she would have great pain and suffering in childbirth. No comment, Janine. But that's part of the curse. And he also said that her desire was going to change from wanting to help her husband, which is the entire point of her creation, to now trying to usurp his authority. It's in Scripture. There was going to be even enmity and hostility in the marriage relationship now. Struggle. Do you see what sin did? It created struggle and discontent and disunity when before there wasn't that at all. And again, we must remember that God is holy. He detests Sin and sinfulness he has to if he doesn't he's not God If he doesn't he's not righteous. He's not perfect. He's not holy. He has to have a Stark hatred for sin and he does So God is perfectly righteous therefore sin to God not to us Unfortunately, but to God sin is utterly sinful It's wicked. It's corrupt. It's everything he hates so imagine everything you hate mixed up in one day, in one hour, given to you at the same time. That's what, God, that's what sin is to God. He hates it. He loathes it. And now God has a dilemma. Because God is righteous and pure and holy, and he hates sin. But do you remember? Man was God's most treasured creation. And do you also remember that God is love? There's a dilemma God had. Between keeping his righteousness and his justice and his love and his hatred, and at the same time looking out for his treasured creation. But because of our rebellion, initially at least, God cursed man with mortality and spiritual separation from God. In other words, leave my presence, get out of my sight. You're sinful, you're wicked, you're corrupt, and I am not. Be gone. He cursed them with mortality, not only on the earth, but something called eternal death now, awaited man. Everlasting punishment was now the destiny for man because of their sin, something that you and I call hell. Hell. Hell is not something that just comes up at Halloween or just some little joke or a little curse word that we use. It's a real place that God designed for the punishment of the wicked. Let that sink into your brain how much God must hate sin, that he creatively designed a place of everlasting punishment. But this is not the end of the story. Thankfully. Otherwise, that would not be good news, right? "Ah, Dismiss, everybody. Have a good day. That's not the end. We need to consider the state of how things were in order to appreciate what comes next. Because the dilemma God had, he came up with a plan, a perfect, beautiful, glorious plan to save his people. And this is where we're going to go to next. The gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the whole point of today. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the gospel, thankfully. So again, God had a dilemma. He had an option. He had a choice to destroy all of mankind. Destroy them. Blot them from the face of the earth as if they never were. Send them to everlasting destruction. Because of his holiness and righteousness and justice he couldn't fellowship with sin sin was the problem we needed to be saved from sin and unto God we needed to go back with God the whole point of reconciliation is back with God because away from God we're alone and everything is dangerous and that is the state of the world that is the state of those outside of Jesus Christ they're alone and everything is dangerous you and I needed to get back with God. We needed to get back to our refuge, back to our protector. And so God came up with a plan to save us. And this plan that God came up with, that is beautiful and that we preach of and proclaim of today, was incredibly costly to God. Incredibly costly to God. Because now enter into the scene is the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about how mankind is God's most treasured creation. Well, Jesus is God's most treasured person he's not a creation jesus like the father always was he is like the father in every aspect every attribute that define god also define his son jesus meaning jesus is holy he does everything that god loves he loves everything that god loves hates everything that god hates he's perfectly like his father and god loves him more than anything and yet God decided to come up with a plan to save his people. And therefore, Jesus had to be the Savior. Jesus had to do a few things, a very, very significant things. Jesus had to come to the earth. And for us, it's like, I know, I've heard it, old news, old hat. But imagine the creation that you helped create, which Jesus did, becoming one of them. It's a dumb illustration, but imagine having to become an ant in order to help the race of ants. I know it's dumb, but think about it. If you had created the ants, now you have to become an ant in order to save them. And it's not a great illustration, but it's the best I can think of. God had to become man. Jesus was not man. Jesus was God in spirit and in heaven with his Father and his throne, being praised by angels and heavenly beings all throughout the day and night. And now God, Jesus, was going to come to the earth and become man. But he wasn't going to just come down as a 33-year-old man and do the saving work. He was going to have to become man exactly as man is. He's going to have to become a baby. He's going to have to come into this world exactly as we do. Because Jesus had to be the representative and the Savior for mankind, which means he has to be one of us. So Jesus came into this world as flesh. As a human being, he stepped into mankind as flesh so he could be our representative, our savior, and he did the most humble thing anyone's ever done. Come from the throne of heaven to the sin-stained, cursed world and become one of them. And not only that, but come as a baby, having to be nursed by your mom and raised. Jesus did it. Jesus obeyed and did the most humble thing anyone's ever done. He went from the highest of heights to the lowest of low. And that's just the beginning. But here's another interesting fact. We need to make sure we know Jesus was not going to be able to be born of natural means because from the beginning of sin, sin was passed down to generation after generation after generation, meaning sinners beget sinners. So if Jesus just comes naturally through Mary and Joseph, Jesus is a sinner, meaning the whole thing is pointless. Jesus cannot save us if he's a sinner. He has to be perfect and holy and righteous, meaning he had to come supernaturally to the world, and he did. He came through the Holy Spirit, meaning Joseph and Mary obviously did not know each other sexually, and yet Jesus was within Mary by the Holy Spirit so that he was not a sinner. He was not born into sin because he needed to be our Savior and our representative. So that's a really important fact, that Jesus came into a virgin by the Holy Spirit and was born by those special means, so that he was not born under sin. Very important to think about. But again, the, hum- the humility was just starting. Jesus had to grow in his manhood. He had to mature. He had to learn. He had to submit himself to his mom and his dad, like every child is supposed to, even though he's the Son of God. Wild. Even though he's the one holding everything together. Jesus had to learn and grow and mature. And at the same time, he always submitted himself to the will of his Heavenly Father. Every single moment. Had to. Did it. Willingly did it. Because he was going to be our sacrifice. So he wasn't born under sin, and Jesus never once broke from the commandments of God. Obeyed him, loved him every moment, and that's really important too. Because Jesus again came to this this earth to die and be our sacrifice for our sin. And this is the epitome of love. If you know love, you know Jesus. Because no one has ever loved you like this, except Christ. Nobody. Nobody could. This is the epitome of love. So Jesus offered up his life, we're going very fast through his life as well, but he offered up his life and was crucified on a Roman cross to pay the debt, the enormous debt that man owed to God because of their sin. This death was horrific. It was the greatest act of humility and torment and shame that ever happened upon this earth. The Son of God was placed on a Roman cross and was crucified. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was blasphemed. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. And he did it willingly. He didn't utter a word. He let it come to him. Because that was the whole plan, to save his people from their sins. And to do the will of his Father. So although Jesus had never committed a sin, he stepped into the place of sinners. And you know what happens when you step into the place of sinners and it's time to judge? God crushes you. That's a weighty fact. But when you're a sinner and it's time to judge the sinners, God will crush you. It's just the honest truth. So when Jesus stepped into the place of sinners, not only did he face the torment of what the Romans could do to him and what the Jews could yell at him, but he faced the wrath of God. And it says in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He broke fellowship with his son, which has never happened before and since. He turned his back on his own son and he crushed him. And all the sin that was upon us became upon Jesus. And he paid so that we wouldn't have to. That's why this is good news. It's hard to listen to. You almost don't want to accept that because of how horrible it is. But this is the crux of our salvation. Jesus died so that you don't have to. He stepped into the place of sinners so that you could step into the place of perfect fellowship with God once again. So the choice to follow Jesus now lies with us. With man, if we've been able to understand and to receive this message today, it already means God is at work in your heart and your soul. And you cannot come to Jesus Christ unless God softens your heart. But if God does soften your heart and you do understand this, you now have a choice. And now the the question remains for us is, what do we do? What do we do if we understand that? What do we do? The first thing we need to focus upon is joy. Joy needs to come to us because this shouldn't have happened. This gift shouldn't have come to us, and yet it has. We need to consider how bad things were for us, how bad things were going to be for us, and consider this good news the best treasure anyone's ever received. Because unless you understand the joyful thing this is, you will never accept it and receive it. And I need to stress this today, that if you don't turn to Christ, there is no other hope. Your sins are your own for the rest of eternity. And when you step into the place of the sinner on Judgment Day, you will pay. And God will crush you. But you don't have to. That's the whole point. So the first thing you need to do is have joy within your soul and within your heart. Because of this news, the next thing you need to do is kind of like what Jesus did, in a way, is become humble. Admit you're a sinner. Admit you're broken. Admit you don't serve the will of God. Admit you're in need of saving, because unless you admit that, you're not going to reach out for the refuge. Admit you're on a fast track to destruction. If we don't first recognize this, there can be no further steps towards Jesus. You must understand, like I had to understand, I have to be saved. There is no hope apart from this. I can't miss out on this. Remember the cruise? Who cares? I can go on a cruise again, you know? What happens if you miss out on Christ? That's it. Forever. It's not possible. You cannot miss out upon this treasure. So you have to admit you're a sinner, you're broken, and that you need to be saved. That's a really important part of this. Next, Jesus brings this over all the time, and so I'm going to bring it up, is he mentions this phrase called counting the cost. I would love to just say to you today that just accept Jesus and then live your life. All you need to do is just say, yes, I don't want to go to heaven. Or, excuse me, yes, I don't want to go to hell. I do want to go to heaven. And Jesus, just stamp my hand, give me whatever I need to do, and let me go back to my life. No, that's not what happens. If you're going to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ, you're also going to turn to him with your life. And he's going to become your Lord and your master. Which Jesus tells us to count the cost. Not count the cost for salvation because salvation is free. But following Jesus is very costly. It's going to mean you say no to sin, no, no to self, no to the world, no to the pattern of this world, no to your ambitions and your desires and your plans for your own life. And you're going to submit to the will of God through Jesus. And Jesus says, don't just come to me without counting the cost. Because what you're going to do is you're going to flake. You're going to become a part-time follower. And I'm not looking for part-time followers. Jesus wants all of us. He demands and deserves all of us. So in order to receive this salvation, you need to count the cost of what it will look like for you to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. I didn't know that part. I'm going to be honest. I received Jesus when I was about five years old. And for a long time, I just lived as if I had a stamp on my hand to get me into heaven. But my life didn't belong to Jesus. I just gave him a few hours a week going, there you go, Jesus. Everyone's happy now. And then I got confronted with passages like, count the cost. Count the cost. If you are mine, then I'm yours and you need to follow me. So Jesus is demanding our all. But you also, while you're counting the cost, do something else. Consider the reward. Put it in the eternal scales and go, okay, my sins and everything the world can offer me on one side, all its joy, all its pleasure, all of its friendships, everything I get for 70, 80 years, okay, everything you can get from the world, and then place Jesus and his salvation on the other side. Consider the reward. Consider what it will be like to have Jesus on the last day vouch for you. Let them into the kingdom. I died for their sins. The next thing we need to do is repent. Repent really means turn around. Turn around. Admit you're going the wrong way, like we did with the humility thing. Admit you're going the wrong way and turn around. And once you leave your sins and turn to Jesus, you can trust in him. You can Place your faith in him. Really, repentance and faith are one action. You repent, you turn from your sins, and you trust in Jesus at the same time. But unless you leave your sins, you can't trust in Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you and your sins. He doesn't. He wants you to leave and abandon your sins because he has different things for you to do. So you and I need to turn around and say, I'm done. I'm done with the world. I'm done with this pattern of sin and wickedness. I'm done with the corruption. I'm done with chasing the pattern of the world. Lord, I want you. And once we turn around, we see Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. I'll take you where you need to go. I'll teach you what you need to know. I'll go there before you so you aren't scared. So we have to repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. And then nextly, he uh, asks us to be baptized. Baptized. Baptism is a symbol. We are immersed into water. We are risen from the water. And that symbol is very powerful and important because it means we are now dead to sin, dead to the world, dead to ourself and our ambitions. And when we're raised out of the water, we are now alive in Christ. And we're his. And it's a symbol of our union with the Lord. And it's a really important symbol. And the last thing Jesus demands and asks is for our devotion. For our devotion. He wants us to belong to him and to serve and obey him all the days of our life. And he wants it out of joy. Not begrudgingly. If you follow Jesus begrudgingly, you don't get it. And I didn't get it for a long time. I followed Jesus begrudgingly. Oh, church again? More Bible until I realized what he had done for me. And I said, I'm yours. I'm yours. Why wouldn't I be yours? Devotion. So the question I have for you today, I was going to illustrate this in a a drawing, but I didn't tell the tech team. So I can't do that. It's probably better because I'm not a great drawer. Um, But I want to tell you today, lastly, before we finish here, is what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? You have a choice. He doesn't force anybody. He doesn't drag you kicking and screaming. What will you do with Jesus? Maybe you believe you have been a Christian up to this point. I hope that you are. But make sure. Be very clear with that today. And if you have any questions today about this, I want you to come and talk to me. I'll I'll tell you more. I'll show you from Scripture. I'll show you from my own testimony about what it means to be a true Christian follower of Jesus. What I don't want you to do is turn, put it off till tomorrow and say, ah, this really isn't that important. It's crucial. That's why we have this today, so that you can understand the grace of God through Jesus. You can be saved, you can be new, you can have hope and eternal security and things like that that the world has never, ever experienced. So what will you do with Jesus today? If you receive him, Your sins are paid for in full. If you reject him, your sins are your own and you will pay. So what will you do with Jesus today? You can directly turn to Christ. You can cry out to him. You could admit to him you're a sinner. You can trust in him. You could tell him you're done with your sins. But if you would like help, if you would like to talk about this more, please Make an appointment or talk to me afterwards because this is the most important thing we could ever talk about. And I pray that you'd search these things out today and understand, am I truly the Lord's? Is he mine? Am I within the refuge? See, we had a really cool illustration given to us this past week. The storms in the southern part of the United States on the east side, right? Liz is here with us today. Thank you, Liz, for the illustration. Liz got out and she went to the safety she went to the refuge. There's a storm coming, an eternal one, called the wrath of God, but there is a mighty refuge. His name is Jesus. And if you're within the refuge when the storm comes, you're fine. You're better than fine. God loves you. God himself, with his power, is shielding you and protecting you from that storm. What will you do with Jesus today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Where do we begin with thanking you? But we thank you for Jesus, that you didn't destroy us when you certainly could have, and we've given you so many chances to do that, Father, and myself included. I pray for every single soul in this building today that we would understand the grace of God, we would understand such a gift and a present was given to us through Jesus, and we would turn to him with joy, with gladness in our soul, And Father, if we are his, then we would continue following him because he is the eternal treasure and he is our eternal refuge. I thank you so much for this. You must do the work in the soul because only you can. And we pray that you would for Christ's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.